for uh, coming, and it's great to see a lot of, lot of uh, new faces, a lot of old friends here today. This is a special day at another milestone. Our church is young, and so you know how when babies are young, it's like every, every day they learn something new or do something new. And uh, so, so if you don't see a kid for a week, they've learned seven new things that you've got to catch up on as, as they develop. Our church is kind of like that, and so today we're doing something new. We're installing and recognizing our diaconal ministry team. And so that's what I'm going to talk about today. And so we're just thankful for the way God is moving, for the people he's brought, for the way he's working in our hearts and bringing us together. And, and hopefully we'll get, get organized enough to, uh, to accomplish the work that he's, he's called us to. Now, I'm, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mark. I'm, I'm the pastor of this church, and, and I've lived in Jersey City for about three years or so. I came here for the purpose of starting this church, and you know, it was interesting, especially in the early days as I was around Jersey City, meeting a lot of people, talking to them about the plan we had to start a new church, uh, and, and told people that I was a pastor, you know, usually the first thing they tell me is I don't look like a pastor, and I, I didn't know whether that was a compliment or an insult, but, but I, just, uh, I just took it. But, uh, but then a lot of people who I met, I'll, I'll, it just seemed like the standard response was people would say, Pastor, I used to go to church, and then they go into some story about some bad thing that happened when they were in church when they were 12 or 22 or 32 or 42, when there was a church split or a church fight or it turned out some leaders in the church were big hypocrites or there were some broken relationships or other poison, poisonous stuff went on, and it, it so affected them that they never really want to go to church again. Maybe some of you can relate to that, and I know I've been a pastor for a long time now, and, and I've been a part of some of those things, and unfortunately, I, I know that there's nothing that's worse. There's nothing better than, than the church when it's doing well, and there's nothing worse than the church when it gets stinky, you know, when things, when things fall apart. But it made me wonder, you know, when you see these problems in the church, it makes me wonder, was there ever a time when the church didn't have those kinds of problems, when people were all getting along and it was unity and harmony? And a lot of people say, well, like the early church, you know, when Peter and James and John were the pastors and you didn't have, you know, regular people like me being pastors and, and, uh, and when people who had actually learned from Jesus were leading the church. But then if you read the story of the early church, it's contained in the New Testament book of Acts, one of the things that's striking about it is it tells us the early church had a lot of problems too and a lot of ugly problems and a lot of really painful problems that they had to work through. But out of those problems, sometimes good arises. So that's what we're going to look at today is some of the benefits and solutions that came out of the, uh, the problems that the church faced. And we're looking at Acts chapter 6. It's printed out in your program if you want to look at it. And this happened just basically, literally a couple weeks after Jesus ascended, after the first church was formed. The, the, uh, they, they had this problem. The church was now thousands of people because thousands and thousands of people were converted under the preaching of, of Peter. And they were just getting organized. And you know, it tells us in Acts 2 that they had everything in common and no one had any needs. And they were all sharing and helping one another. So the, the people who, who had means were, were supporting the people who were hungry and things like that. But then a problem came up. And it says, in those days when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
So the twelve gathered together all the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit also, Philip, Procurus, Nicantor, Timian, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word for God's children. So the early church, just a couple weeks into it, you know, right after Acts 2 where it says they had everything in common and no one had any needs, they've got a serious problem. Their most vulnerable population, the people who are most in need, are not being taken care of, are deliberately being overlooked. And it's a serious problem that needed a serious solution right away because people are not being fed. They need, you need to take care of the people who are vulnerable and in need. You need to feed the, the hungry. That's, that's the most basic of Christian duties. And so they realized that they had, even though the church was a spiritual organization, even though the church was a, was a moral organization, even though the church was an eschatological organization, the church was also a physical organization and physical needs needed a physical solution. Physical problems need to be addressed physically. And so they, they realize they need to make provision for these people to be fed. Because the, the apostles wanted people to be godly and spiritual and deep, but they also needed to be people who got food to those in need. And church life and the church family, the Bible set, makes it clear that the church is a spiritual organization, an organization that's all about our doctrine and the Holy Spirit working among us and us following God and worshiping God and lifting our hands in prayer to God. It's all of that, but it's also a physical and practical organization. And the Bible describes love as this thing that the Holy Spirit brings among us, but the Bible also describes love as something we show practically to those around us. Important verse is 1 John 3.17. Could you pop that up? It says, If any of you has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let's not love in word or speech, but in deed and in truth. He's saying, don't talk about love if you're not willing to show practical love to people who are in need. Don't talk about love if you don't care about those around you who have various needs that need to be addressed. And so when the church and when people who are following God and people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and people who are studying the Word see practical needs around them, they've got to address those needs practically. Because practically, Physical problems and practical problems need physical and practical solutions. And for the church to be faithful, it's got to be committed to addressing the practical problems and the practical challenges that they face. But it wasn't just a physical problem or a practical problem. It was also a very a big organizational problem. 
What the apostles realized is that the values that the apostles taught and the values and principles of the gospel were not being handed down and were not being integrated into the organization because the, the apostles were teaching the gospel and the heart of the gospel was the idea that our relationship with God is not based on what we give to God, but that God gave his son for us. And, and our, our connection with God is not based on who we are, but based on who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. And grace is not something that we earn or achieve, but it's something that we receive as a gift from God. And because of that, all of us are equal before God. All of us stand equal before God, and all of us need to be treated equally. And so here in the early church, weeks after Jesus ascended, and Peter and James and John are in charge, they have racism erupting in a very practical way. They have the Hebraic Jews, the people who spoke Hebrew, and then the Hellenistic Jews, the people who spoke Greek, and whoever was distributing the food was only giving it to the, the Hebrew-speaking Jews and was overlooking the Greek-speaking Jews. Even though they were all Christians, even though they were all part of the Christian community, they were, they were showing preference to one racial group over another racial group. See, the early church was unified, but it was also diverse, and people spoke different languages, people, people associated in different areas, but, and, and, and that was all well and good, except that the leaders were not being equal in their distribution of the benefits. And, every, and, and there were people in need in all groups who, who needed to receive Food. And so what the apostles realized is the, the church had become too big to manage and, and it was too complex for them to continue to manage. And so they needed an organizational problem to the, uh, an organizational solution to their organizational problem. They couldn't just, if they, had, if they had just ignored this problem just to say, well, all we do is focus on the ministry of word and prayer people would have gone hungry and it would have sent the message that some people weren't as important as other people. And if they had just focused on this problem, they would have neglected the very thing that formed the church, which was the ministry of the word and prayer. So what did they do? They addressed the problem by finding and locating people who could focus in on it. It says, look at verse 2, it says, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we'll turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the apostle said, it's time to get organized. We're getting too big to manage this ourselves. We gotta stay focused, so we need to turn this responsibility over to some people who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom who will faithfully execute these duties in a way that's consistent with our values and, and will focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. Because here's the question, in the food, what, excuse me, in the church, what's more important? Distributing food to those in need or prayer and the ministry of the word? What's more important? Huh? Both. If you want to run a race, what's more important, your right leg or your left leg? Both. And sometimes, and in the church, what's more important, distributing food or prayer in the ministry of the word? They're both important. You need both of them to be working at the same time for things to be working. And the apostles recognized that this was a core issue of their compassion, but also of, of, uh, of unifying the diverse elements in the church. You can't have one, 
one group saying that this church doesn't actually practice what they preach because they're not committed to sharing, sharing equally the resources of the church. And sometimes, you know, this is true in churches, it's true in families, it's true in organizations of all sorts. Sometimes a lot of people are hurt and a lot of misunderstanding happens, not because people have bad intentions, but because they're just disorganized. And, you know, sometimes our families get disorganized and it causes hurt feelings and things like that. Someone forgets someone's anniversary or whatever. Sometimes, sometimes churches get disorganized. And even though people all have good intentions, people are falling through the cracks. People are not being ministered to or, or issues are not being addressed just because we're disorganized. And, uh, and you know, pastors are notoriously the most disorganized. I mean, that, that's why God calls us into pastoring. But, uh, but what we need for the church to be effective, especially as a church grows, is you need to get more and more organized, not for the sake of building an organization, but so that you can better minister to the people that God sends to you. So, so there was a physical problem that needed a physical solution. People were hungry, they needed to be fed. There was an organizational problem that needed an organizational solution. The apostles couldn't do it all, so they had to find people to address it. But, but at the core of all of this was a spiritual problem that needed a spiritual solution. There was a deep-seated prejudice in the early church, this prejudice between the, those who, who spoke Greek and those who spoke Hebrew, those who had been raised and, and schooled in, in the Greek schools but followed Christ and those who had been raised in the Hebrew schools but, but followed Christ. And that was a serious problem that, you know what, if you read the New Testament, it turns out they spend been the whole New Testament trying to solve this problem. And Paul talks about it in Ephesians and Romans and the book of Acts. They, they, they're continually uh, struggling through this, this problem of integrating, having one church that is made up of people from all these different backgrounds. And what rules do we have to follow? What rules can we let go of? What traditions are of the essence of what God is calling us to do and what traditions can we let go of? It's a complicated, difficult problem. And as you read through the Bible, it's, 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 it's something that they're addressing over and over again. And, and someone has pointed out that in, in the New Testament, all of the magisterial expositions of the gospel, particularly like Galatians, Ephesians, and Romans, where Paul is really giving the deepest gospel explanation, one of the things he addresses at length is the problem of racism because he realizes that that was one of the ways people were failing to apply the gospel to the problems that they faced. Because at its, at, at its essence, this is a heart issue. And this is an issue that's in all of our hearts, because one of the ways we try to justify ourselves instead of by trusting in Christ is by thinking, finding someone else we can look better at look down on and feel uh, superior to or finding someone else we can exclude and by that we, we, we justify our inclusion within a certain group. But one of the great contributions of the biblical worldview is providing a basis through which all of humanity is equal and it's because our salvation, our identity, our justification is not based on what we've achieved or accomplished or what we give to God or do for God. It's based on 
what Jesus achieved and what Jesus accomplished and what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus has given for us. And God's call on us is to accept his grace, accept his sacrifice, and to be, be grateful and give praise to him for that. But, but one of the unifying threads here, the reason that, that organizational and physical and spiritual needs all go together because, is because Christianity at its heart brings together the spiritual and the physical. And just think about, about the basic things that are at the core, or at the heart of Christianity. What is love according to the Bible? Well, we just talked about that. Love is action, seeing somebody in need and helping them however you can. That's, that's how love is defined according to the Bible. You know, the Bible talks a lot about money, and you know, we think of money as just a, just a thing. But the Bible says, that money is actually God's greatest competitor for our hearts. That's why Jesus said no one can serve two masters. Either he will love one and hate the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Because money, the Bible says, and what you do with money is very spiritual, profoundly spiritual. Now, some of us have been through 12-step uh, programs, and you, you know one of the principles of the 12 steps is that our addiction issues are spiritual issues. And unless we're willing to address the spiritual issues behind our addiction, we'll never address the process issue or the chemical dependence or whatever else is going on because, because all experts recognize that behind every addiction is a spiritual issue that we need to be willing to face and need to be willing to admit. And so across the board, we see that all of our our physical problems actually are spiritual, and all of our spiritual issues have a physical component to them, and, th and that's the way that God has made it. Whenever you try to separate the spiritual and the physical, what happens is you lose both. You know, and that's why, why the religions or the faith that are oriented just towards a spirituality without addressing our physical body, like the ancient Greek religions or, or Eastern spirituality, why they don't really help us at a deepest level because the gospel and the life of Jesus brings it all together. Have you guys heard of Jesus? You know the story of Jesus? You know, he was born on the first Christmas. What happened on the first Christmas? God became a baby. God, the eternal God, entered into this world as a little baby, right? That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. Pleased as men with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Remember that Christmas carol? It's the celebration of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Do you know the story of the life of Jesus and how that went? Jesus was always engaged in the practical and physical needs of those around him. He, he did all these miracles, but they weren't just miracles to show off his power. He did miracles like helping a blind man see, helping a lame man walk, helping healing a woman who touched the edge of his garment. And when things got tough, he had compassion on the people who came to him who were hungry, and he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. When there was a wedding celebration and they ran out of wine, Jesus said, we got to solve this problem, and he turned water into wine, because Jesus was always addressing the physical and practical needs of the people around him because Jesus was showing people what the presence of the kingdom and the arrival of the kingdom would look like. It would look like the blind seeing. It would look like the lame walking. It would look like all of us who are dead being 
being raised again and being given new life. And that's what the life of Jesus did. And then you know what happened on Good Friday? On Good Friday, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, was beaten with whips. And then he had to carry his cross to the top of the hill. And then they nailed him to that cross. And when he was hanging from that cross, and one of the things he said is, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. And there was nothing more physical than the death of Jesus on Good Friday. But then, at the same time, as he was hanging from the cross, he called out to his Father in heaven, who he had been in eternal, perfect relationship with. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because scholars tell us, the Bible teaches us that the greatest agony for Jesus wasn't that there were... That, that he was lashed with a whip on his back. The greatest agony for Jesus wasn't that there were nails in his hands and his feet or that he was slowly suffocating there on the cross, but it was that his father turned his face away from him and that he was forsaken by God and that he was bearing the sins of the world in that place. So we think of Good Friday, we think of the sacrifice of Jesus and it was profoundly physical and profoundly spiritual at the same time. But then what was Easter? What was Easter? Jesus rose again from the dead, but for him to rise again from the dead and for him to get out of the grave, they had to move the stone out of the way. Why'd they have to move that stone out of the way? Because it wasn't just a ghost that came up. It was Jesus got a new body, a resurrected body, a renewed body, an eternal body. And, and all things were made new, starting with Jesus and, and his resurrected body. And so the salvation that God offers us, the salvation that the gospel proclaims is a spiritual salvation, but it's also a physical salvation. It's, giving, it's filling us with the Spirit and filling us with love, but it's also renewing our lives and making our lives new and then making all things new ultimately and the, and the renewal of all things. The story of humanity is that God became man to redeem us. Jesus died to conquer death. Jesus rose to make everything new. And when we serve God, we don't just serve him practically and spiritually, we also serve him physically and materially as we, as we reach out to those who are in need. And uh, so, so a big part of that is the work of the deacons. And, and in just a moment, I'm going to bring our deacons up front and introduce them to you. But the deacon's job is to follow Christ specifically by pursuing the redemption of all things through serving those who are in need and to integrate the spiritual with the practical, to integrate the moral with the material and to bring these things together just like Jesus did. Now, the word deacon, some of you might not know this, but the word deacon is actually a loan word from the Greek, the Greek word diakonos. And that, that word in the Greek means servant. And that, that was kind of a, a, an interesting term to use, especially in the, in the first century when the servants were, were, when it was just considered very deeply lowly to be a, a servant. But here's the interesting thing. When Jesus was defining his mission and telling people what he came to do, in Mark 10, 45, if you could pop that up, Jesus is saying, you know, the greatest among you will be the servants among you. And then he says this. He says this about himself. For even the Son of Man, that is Jesus, he did not come to be served, 
but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, in other words, another way you could phrase that is, even the Son of Man did not come to, to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the call of Jesus was to become a servant by his birth, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, to make all things new in this world around us. And, and, and the healing and the restoration he brought was by him being willing to serve. Because the work of the kingdom is done by those willing to serve. And the work of deacon, deaconing is a position of honor in the church, but it's an honor that goes to those who are willing to serve. The deacons are the advance force of the kingdom of God, just like Jesus was when he came to earth. And, and they're here to help people physically, practically, and spiritually. You know, some of you pray the Lord's Prayer, and in it we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The deacon's job is to bring the power and the grace and the love of the kingdom of heaven down to earth, to bring heaven down to earth. And the Bible says we do that by being willing to serve, to heal, to help, to care for, to feed, and to support those in need. That's what we're here to do. That's what God gave us deacons to help us do as a church. It says in one of the old hymns that it's not with swords loud clashing or with a roll of stirring drums, but it's with deeds of love and mercy that the heavenly kingdom comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that he came as a king who was willing to be a servant. And so then rather than obliterating all of his adversaries, he came and redeemed his adversaries, including me, including all those who will call on his name. I thank you for his humility. I thank you that Jesus was willing to serve. And I thank you for the deacons you've raised up in our church and for their desire to serve. And I pray that you would have your hand on us now as we introduce them. In Jesus' name, amen.